please turn your Bibles to Psalm 87. Psalm 87, a psalm that uh, has been very impactful in my life, but realized I haven't, uh, we haven't preached on it here at Bethany Community. I bring you greetings this morning uh, from your brothers and sisters in Christ at Brackenhurst Baptist Church in Johannesburg, South Africa. They greet you in the name of the Lord, and it was a great, uh, great uh, two weeks in South Africa. Uh, thank you for allowing me to go and, and participate in that. It was a great joy to, to be there. there uh, what had happened is last year, about the same time, I, I spoke at a conference near Johannesburg in Pretoria, South Africa on orphan care ministry, and I met a pastor there at that conference named Doug Van Meter, and he's the pastor at Brackenhurst Baptist Church, and he invited me to, to come back and participate in their missions conference this year, and after kind of talking about it and praying about it and uh, thinking through some, some issues there, we, we said yes, we'd, we'd love to be a part of that, and so uh, this, this last two weeks, or two weeks ago mainly, I was at this, this conference, uh, their missions conference, Missions and the Marginalized, it was just a, 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 real, a real sweet time. In fact, there are kind of a, a couple components to, to the ministry I was just able to be a part of, Whitney and I were able to be a part of. Uh, one was a ministry to, to pastors and other ministry leaders there in South Africa. Uh, some of the, the pastors we had met, ministry leaders we'd met last year when we were there, and so we were able to renew some friendships and encourage them. And then there's some, some new ministry leaders we were able to meet and pastors we were able to meet. There's kind of a network of churches there in the Johannesburg area and surrounding areas that are part of a network called the the Sola Five network of, of churches, evangelical churches with a God-centered vision for ministry. And they're just doing some, some really amazing things. There's some theological depth in the churches in South Africa that is, that is amazing and very encouraging. In fact, um, it was a little bit intimidating. They've had some, some really uh, gifted speakers come through. And, and so there's this, this church there in Johannesburg, South Africa, on half a world away. And uh, it's 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 not a it's, it's not a small church, but it's not a, by any by any means a mega church either. And so there were, you know, as I was talking with them, I was I was constantly surprised by the the people who have been through their church or that their church has, has had the access to talk to. And so someone would be asking me a question. So you know, what do you think about such and such? Because when I talked to Kevin DeYoung about this, he said this. Or you know, when I when I talked to Philip Ryken, he said this. Or Mark Dever, whenever he was here, said this. I'm like, I keep on. Who has not been here, for crying out loud? Uh, John Piper? Yeah, whenever John Piper was here, he said the same thing. Uh, so it's just, it was very intimidating in, in one sense, too. But it was encouraging to know what the Lord is, is doing there. There's just a, a great theological awakening there among some, some churches. And so there was ministry in that sense to, to ministry leaders. There was also the opportunity to speak to some people who uh, were coming out of some very very dangerous, uh, dangerous denominations and some, 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 uh, some really perverted teaching. There's, the health and wealth gospel is thriving in South Africa, and so there are a lot of people who've been deceived by the health and wealth gospel, just the idea that, you know, if, if, you, uh, if you have enough faith, you can name it, you can claim it, and so there's, there's this, uh, you know, T.D. Jakes and Benny Hinn and all those guys have also been in, in South Africa recently, and so uh, it's it's uh, sad to see that influence there among the churches, but there are some people who are recognizing, hey, this this 
what these teachers are teaching about prosperity and, and wealth and all this thing, that doesn't mesh with what God's Word tells us. And so they're trying to reconcile those things. And so there's an opportunity to talk to some guys who are trying to bring their churches to a more biblical vision of what ministry is supposed to be all about. And so that was, that was encouraging as well. Uh, we also got a chance, uh, as I mentioned, to speak to the people at Brackenhurst, this, this church. There were kind of five days to this conference, and so uh, four evenings in a row I, I taught through the book of Ruth. Well, I didn't do it four evenings. We, over four evenings we got through the book of Ruth, and we talked about missions to the marginalized, and then on, on Sunday we, we talked about Psalm 87 that we're looking at this morning. And um, They kind of do something interesting. Their church at the end of their missions week, or I guess what happens every night is there'll be like a, some singing and there would be a, a missionary that the church supports giving their testimony of what's going on in the area in which they are. And they'd, they'd fly their missionaries back. And, and then, uh, I, then there'd be a, a choir or something and then I, I would teach through part of the book of Ruth and, and then there'd be uh, tea, which uh, was, was kind of fun. Tea and uh, pudding. But pudding means dessert, not literal pudding, which was quite surprising to me as I looked for the pudding and couldn't find it. Um, so there's, there's that, there's the, there was the, the missions conference weekend. And at the very end of the missions conference, what they did is they encouraged everyone to offer kind of a, uh, a pledge for how much they were going to give to the missions budget that year. And so based on the total number of pledges, that determined what they would do for missions. And at the end of the week, uh, it was a, a record-setting week for them in, in uh, raising funds for their, their missions ministry. Uh, but I did not get a cut um, because this is not a health and wealth gospel uh, church. So there's some miscommunication there. But still, it was, a, uh, no, it, was, it was really neat to get to see how the Lord was, was working in that church through, through not just the week, but, but through over years of, of faithful uh, biblical teaching there by Doug and, and his elders and and just just very sweet people. I, I you know, my, my as I was there, I was like, boy, I just I wish there was some way to get all these people and all our people together. I think there'd be a, some some neat opportunities there, but uh, I don't think a, a potluck is in the works. That's quite a bit of logistical problems. But maybe in heaven, right? We'll do a do a do a potluck there. And then the last component of the trip was just uh, ministry to and from Doug's family. So we stayed with Doug and his family, and, and they're just some, some very sweet people. And so uh, Doug's kids are uh, a couple of years older, or, you know, kind of the next stage of, of my kids, uh, or two stages maybe even with, with some of them. So it was, it was neat to listen to him and, and learn from him and his, his parenting philosophies, and just, just a neat time of ministry. So thank you. Thank you for letting me be a part of that. And again, your brothers and sisters in Johannesburg, uh, greet you in the name of the Lord, and, and thank you uh, also for uh, your generosity in, in uh, allowing me to go. So let me, uh, we're in Psalm 87, and again, this is a, a passage that we, we talked about uh, last Sunday in Johannesburg, and I thought it'd be good for us to, to look at it this week as well. Uh, I'm a little bit uh, loopy this morning, so hopefully this isn't a memorable sermon for the wrong reasons. You know, we got in uh, 1.30 in the afternoon yesterday after 30-something hours of travel, so it's, it's going to be, uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting morning for me, uh, uh, and we'll, we'll see how it goes. But I'm excited for the opportunity to share this passage from God's Word with you. And if you would, if you're able to, stand with me as we read Psalm 87 together. Psalm 87, 
a psalm that says the sons of Korah a song. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I, will, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the people, This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the joy of, of being together this morning, and, and thank you for uh, your, your word and, and just the, the truth here of, of people who are from different places and nationalities and cultures and people groups coming together for one purpose, uh, to exalt you, to worship you, to glorify your name. We pray this morning that, that we would have a similar unity of purpose, the desire as your people, your sheep, to glorify and exalt your name. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The short story writer, O. Henry, uh, tells a story that I'm going to kind of paraphrase. I'm not sure if I remember all the details of the story correctly, but, but basically the story goes something like this. There was a a rich young man who was on a hunting party, and he was there in the woods, and he got separated from his, his group, and there as he was separated from his group, they, he found his, his way into this, this clearing. And as he found his way into the clearing, there was a young lady there gathering wildflowers. He stopped, and he looked over at her, and she sensed movement and looked over and up at him, and his as her eyes went up and as, as his eyes went down, they, they met kind of there in the middle and uh, love overwhelmed them both. This rich young man fell in deeply and helplessly, he thought, and in love with this, this young woman, this young maiden there in the forest gathering wildflowers. And they spoke not a word. She looked at him, he looked at her, she stood up and as they were looking there at one another, they, they heard voices, and she heard the people from the group that she had been a part of, and he heard his group searching and calling out for him. And so they said not a word, but, but she reached over and gave him the flowers that she had been picking, and he quickly picked up some flowers and pressed them into her hand, and without a word, they, they left back to their respective groups. Well, in the story that's flash forward several years, and now we find that same young man in a chapel preparing to get married. His parents have set him up with a rich young heiress, and he's met her once or twice, and she's nice enough, but as we see him there in the, the room in the chapel preparing to get married, we see that he pulls out of his coat pocket those wildflowers from so many years ago, and we realize that he's been pining for that young woman in the, the clearing in the forest, and, and now he's getting married to this rich heiress, and he recognizes that what he had dreamed to happen would not be, and so he takes the, those, those dried up wildflowers and he throws them into the fire. 
scene shifts to a different room in the chapel as the rich young heiress is preparing to get married. And she is there, and she's in her wedding gown and all those, those, those uh, things that go with the wedding gown. And she is prepared to go in, and she's met this young man, and she finds him nice enough. But her heart yearns for someone as well. And she reaches into her purse, and she pulls out the wildflowers from so many years ago. And at that moment, you realize that this heiress and this young man are the same two people from that that forest meeting so many years ago, and, and they've been yearning for one another, and now they're going to get married to one another and not even know it. And wow, do I find that story frustrating. <laughs> I find it frustrating because, in my opinion, uh, love compels you to say something. You don't just sit there with your mouth shut, right? Whenever uh, I wanted to ask uh, Whitney out on a date for the first time. I can remember going to her and, and seeing her and, and mustering up the courage and very boldly saying, Whitney, <laughs> would you bother me? And her first response to me, what did you say? I'm not kidding. I said, I said, would you like to get a bite to eat? Yeah. And she said, no, I'm busy. And so I pressed forward. Why? Love at least the beginnings of it, love compels us to speak, to, to say something. In this passage, we're finding out about something that God loves. And as we look at Psalm 87, we see that God loves diversity. God loves people of different cultures and backgrounds, ethnicities, people groups, gathering together and, and engaging in worship of him. And this, this idea of, of diversity, of, of people from different backgrounds and groups and cultures coming together to, to worship the Lord is something that sometimes the church, the evangelical church, doesn't talk about. And I wonder if one of the things we don't, one of the reasons we don't talk about it is because, because we don't love it the way that God loves it. And I encourage you to, to think about that this morning as, as we look at Psalm 87. And talk about diversity. Diversity in worship of Yahweh God. We live in a culture that, that sometimes celebrates diversity for the wrong reasons. And perhaps that's one of the reasons that we're kind of shy sometimes about talking about certain types of diversity. But at the same time, I think that one of the reasons we don't talk about this, why we're silent, is because we don't love it in the way that God loves it. There's coming a day when racism, prejudice, ethnocentrism, all other race-related sins are coming to an end. And, and, and God's people will be able to engage in, in worship of, of God in, in perfect unity. And we'll be able to submit ourselves completely to our head, Jesus Christ. And what must happen is, I believe, right now we must love that idea. And our love for that must compel us to speak. Do you delight, this is kind of my question for you this morning as we think about this passage, do you delight in diverse worship of God? Do you yearn to experience the type of worship that we're going to be engaged in for eternity right now? And are you experiencing the unity with with people from other cultures and ethnicities that God desires you to experience? 
This is something the church in South Africa struggles with, but it's something the church in North America struggles with as well. But what we're going to see as we look at this passage in Psalm 87 is that our passion must be to fulfill God's will. And this means that as a church, we need to be able to say, we, we want to witness a wideness of worship of Yahweh. We want to witness a wideness of worship of Yahweh at one wellspring. And we're going to talk about what that statement means as we look at Psalm 87. There's a guy named Ron Allen who's, by the way, who's, who's dealt with this passage, and I'm indebted to some of his thoughts as he's thought through this psalm. This, this psalm, I believe it's, it's, it's simple. It's just seven verses long, and yet at the same time, there's, there's some hard things to understand. In fact, Ron Allen tells the story of being at a church in Texas, and the, as he gets ready to, to preach this, this passage, a the, this, this, he's in a small country church, and the, one of the deacons gets up and says, Well, I read this psalm last night. didn't make no sense. read it this morning again. still don't make no sense. I'm going to read it to y'all, and you're going to see. This don't make no sense. And he looked over it. I hope you can do something with this, you know. So we're going to see. Can we do something with this? Can we understand what God is trying to communicate to us? through Psalm 87. So we're going to look at a couple principles here as we think about this idea of biblically diverse worship. Here's the first thing we're going to look at. This is the lovely gates principle. The lovely gates principle. And this is what this principle says. The lovely gate principle is simply this. God delights in diverse worship. And look at verses 1 through 3 with me, if you will. It says this. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob, Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Now, as we read those three verses, there's a couple of mysteries, right? The first mystery is who's doing the speaking there in verse 3. It says, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. But, but what are the glorious things that are being spoken, and, and who's doing the speaking? The other mystery, I think, is from verse 2. Verse 2 tells us that the Lord loves the gates, but what, what, (laughs) why the gates? What makes the gates so lovely? A couple things here. We look then and try to kind of solve these mysteries. The first thing we see is that there's not just one thing that God loves. We we see a couple things that God loves as we look at these verses. The first thing that we see that he loves, we see that he loves Jerusalem. It says on the holy mount stands the city he founded. So that's referring to Jerusalem. God himself founded the city of Jerusalem, and and, and he loves it. That's that's a good thing. So that's the first love that God has in verses 1 and 2. There's another love that he has, right? The other love that he has occurs at the end of verse 2. It says, he loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. And he he does love the dwelling places of Jacob, but there's something he loves more. So the second love is these dwelling places of Jacob. And and what does that refer to? What's so great about the dwelling places of Jacob? Well, if you go back to the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 23, remember the people of Israel are encamped on the plains of Moab, and and there is as different people are, are Balaam comes and at the request of the king of Moab to curse the people of Israel. And instead of cursing them, Balaam blesses the people of Israel. He says he tries to, to curse them, but he can't. He says, uh, this is what Balaam says in Numbers. He says, from Aram, Balak 
has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains, come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? And then he he offers this prophecy in verse 9. For from the tops of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. And so here in Psalm 87, I think he's referring back to that prophecy that Balaam made. Balaam saying, someday I see the, the, Jacob and his, and, his, and his descendants dwelling here, a people set apart for God's glory. And so God sees the, the dwelling places of Jacob, and, and he rejoices in that. This is a good thing. What God said would happen has happened. So this is all good. So God loves Jerusalem, and God loves the dwelling places of Jacob. But there's another love, a special love, and it's there in verse 2. What's this third love? It's the gates of Zion. Now, in a way, he's just repeating what he said in verse 1, that the gates are representative of the city, but but why does he highlight that detail? Why not say the Lord loves the walls of Jerusalem or the Lord loves, you know, the you know, the pathways through Jerusalem. What's so special about these gates? And who is speaking these glorious things of God in verse 3? What we're going to see as we go through the rest of the psalm is that the people who are speaking these glorious things are not just the descendants of Jacob. It's not just the people of Israel, is it? We'll see this in just a moment, but the people who are speaking these glorious things are people from different ethnicities. It's a person from Ethiopia. It's the Philistine. It's a person from Egypt. So, what's the deal? What's so significant about the gates? The gates are the entry point for worshipers. We're going to see that as we go through the rest of the psalm. It's through these gates that people from different countries and culture groups and ethnicities are able to enter into Jerusalem and and be able to to come in and and worship God. The remainder of the passage shows us that it's, 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 it's worship by people who are ethnically different from the Israelites that are coming and, and, and enabled by these gates. This is a powerful passage, I think, for the, for the Israelites that refutes the ethnocentrism that would dominate Judaism and later Christianity as we see in the book of Acts. I believe that in these verses, God is delighting in the fact that there's diversity in his worship. I believe that God has a passion for diversity in worship. Now, now here's kind of a, a somewhat controversial statement. It's something we've talked about before. But when we say that God delights in diversity in worship, we, we could be saying one of two things. One of several things, but we'll talk about one of two things. We could be saying, well, God delights in a whole bunch of people worshiping him. And because God delights in a whole bunch of people worshiping him, as you get a bunch of people together, there's going to be diversity within that large group. And by the way, some of my, my thoughts here are influenced by a great book, Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. I recommend that to you. 
So one idea is God just like God wants a bunch of worshipers, a large number of worshipers, and anytime you get a big group of people, there's going to be diversity in that group. That's that's one understanding, and I I think that's not correct. There's something more going on here. It's not just that God wants a whole bunch of people worshiping Him, and then you're going to get diversity, but that diversity itself is a goal that God has for worship. In other words, he doesn't want just a large number of people worshiping him. He wants a diverse group of people engaging in worship of him. Let me give you some passages that I think describe this. One is from 1 Kings chapter 8. King Solomon is praying and he says, concerning the foreigner, he's dedicating the temple here. He says, as he talks about the temple, he says, concerning the foreigner who's not of thy people, Israel, when he comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes in and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know thy name to fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. The psalmist in Psalm 9-11 says, Declare among the peoples his deeds. Uh, Psalm 47, verse 1, Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with the voice of joy. Uh, Psalm 117, verse 1, Praise the Lord, all nations. Praise him, all peoples. And so often I think we make the same mistake that the Israelites did. We think that that, that we're God's people and, and, and God's whole plan of redemption exists just for us or just for our ethnicity or just for our culture group or just for our people. In reality, what we see is that, yeah, salvation's from the Jews. Their salvation, though, was meant to lead to the salvation of all people, of all nations. Zechariah fourteen sixteen says, Then it will come about that any... This, this, is by, this is after judgment. God has dealt judgment upon the nations. And it says, Then... Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. So even God's judgment on the nations is, is designed to bring about their worship of God. It's an extensive topic. We could talk a lot more about it. But what we see here as we look at the Old Testament is that God calls for ethnically diverse worship. He desires representatives from all people groups to be engaged in worship of him, and he envisions a time in which this, this whole worship takes place corporately. We see the same thing in the New Testament, right? What's the Great Commission? What does is, what is God, what, what does Jesus command the disciples at the end of the book of Matthew as he's, he's talking with them and, and giving them the Great Commission? Sometimes I think we misread it. The Great Commission, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, when he says, go and make disciples of all the nations, does he mean, you know, go to all the different, uh, you know, political groups, and whenever you find this, this political entity, go and evangelize that political entity? Or when he says all the nations, is he talking about all the, the people groups, people who are identified by by culture and shared customs, and I think the biblical evidence is on the latter. When Jesus says, go and reach all the nations, he's talking about reaching all the people groups. The Great Commission, the task of evangelizing, is, is a task to engage in, in multiple ethnic diversity of, of worship as we engage 
in worship. That's, that's the end goal. That's what all of this is, is headed toward. This is what the Great Commission evangelism missions is, is headed toward. Revelation 7, 9. After these things, John says, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, from every people group, from tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Revelation 5, 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the book, to break its seals, for you were slain and you purchased, they're talking to the Lamb, and you purchased for God with your blood Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You see, these, these passages in Revelation and in Scripture envision a time not just of individuals engaged in worship, but of ethnic groups called into this, this corporate unified worship of Yahweh God. As we look at Psalm 87, what do we see? We have to conclude from the Old Testament and New Testament, that a diversity of people groups engaged in worship of God is part of God's redemptive plan. And brothers and sisters, if God delights in diverse worship, you and I should as well. A few years ago, I may have shared this story before, but a few years ago, I think whenever she was about three years old, Hannah and I kind of, Hannah and I, told the story to get, Hannah kind of told the story, and I asked a lot of questions about the story, and so this, this is where, the, this is kind of the, the overview of the story that Hannah told me whenever she was about three years old. She, she was telling me this story about two little bugs who lived in the field next to Bethany Baptist Church, where we attended at the time, and as she told the story about the two little bugs, she, she said their names were Hannah and Austin, which was coincidentally the name of her and her little brother, and she, she told the story, and it was about bugs, but it kind of told a perspective of church from the eyes of a, of a three-year-old as well, a, a short little kid kind of looking up at the world around her as a three-year-old. And she said uh, these, these two little bugs who lived next to Bethany Baptist Church in the field wanted to go to church, but they couldn't because it was, it was so far away for a bug to travel. And so it talks about the, the great journey these two little bugs, Hannah and Austin, did to, to get to the door of Bethany Baptist Church. But when they got to the door, there was a problem. They, they couldn't open the door because they were bugs. And then they had to wait for someone to come and open the door. And finally, when the door was open, the two little bugs scurried in. And, and then uh, she tells about how the two little bugs had to, to scurry around people and their, their big feet and, and how hard and how dangerous it was for these two little bugs. And then the two little bugs came and they, they sat down in the, the service and, and things were going okay until, um, until an older saint spotted the two little bugs. And, and, and she screamed and, and then everyone started screaming. And there was pandemonium and the bugs were kind of darting around trying to, to stay safe until, until Pastor Rich came. <laughs> And picked up the two little bugs and said, it's okay, little bugs. And came and sat him on the podium so they could, could listen to him preach. And then he got really excited. No, um, <laughs> But I thought, you know, what a, what a great story to illustrate some of the challenges of being in a church for a little kid. People are big and, you know, sometimes get freaked out by them. But I also think there's application there when it comes to to diversity in worship. Whatever there are people from different cultures or, or groups than our own who come into our church, there are sometimes barriers that we don't even realize are there. And sometimes it takes looking at 
our church from the eyes of other people from, from different backgrounds and cultures and saying, okay, if I wanted to come and worship at this church, what barriers would exist for me? That's not a question you're going to ask if you don't love diversity. If you love diversity, you're going to say, okay, what are the things that would, would what, what gates would exist for people who wanted to engage in worship of God here at this church? I believe it's an important question for us to ask if we're going to delight in worship that's diverse. So the lovely gates principle is just simply this. God delights in diverse worship. There's, there's diversity and, and the people who are different uh, from us can, can come into our gates and say, okay, the gates are open. I, I, can, I can worship here. I engage in worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And it, it involves asking ourselves some tough questions. There was a there was a, a woman who was, was being asked about diversity in her church, and, and she said, you know, I, I, um, I, I agree that I, it, our church should be diverse. And she said, uh, anyone is welcome in our church, provided they don't start messing with our worship music, because then things are going to get ugly. <laughs> what is that? It's a closed gate. Closed gate. God loves the open gates, these lovely gates. He loves them because he delights in diverse worship. Here's a second principle that we see, and this is in verses 4 through 6. This is the reborn people's principles. We think about nations reborn in diversity and in worship that God delights in. And here we see that God unifies his people through rebirth. Look at verses 4 through 6 with me of, of Psalm 87 as we're, we're talking about this idea of diversity in worship. It says, um, among those who know me, I mention Rahab, and that's another word for Egypt, the, some historical enemies of the Israelites. In fact, maybe your translation says Egypt there. Among those who know me, I, I mention Rahab and, and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre and with Cush. This one was born there, they say, and of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers his pe- the peoples, this one was born there. He says, okay, what in the world are verses 4 through 6 talking about? Well, there you have Egypt and, those, and, and Babylon. Those are historical enemies of the people of Israel. Babylon was known from, for idolatry from its earliest time. Uh, but, but Egypt and Babylon there, who are traditional enemies of Israel, are are coming through the gates of Israel to engage in worship. There's also the Philistines. These are the great enemies of King David. They're a seafaring people. They're from the Aegean region, but had come to Crete, and from Crete had come into Canaanite, and they're, they're kind of, of of European descent. And so here's the first mention of these, these Europeans coming in to engage, and of people of European descent coming in to engage in worship of God. There's Tyre, kind of the, the yuppies of the ancient people in Canaan, and they're, they're a sophisticated seafaring people, and what are they doing? They're coming through the gates of Israel to engage in worship of Yahweh. There's the Cushite or the Ethiopian, they're those from Africa, they're other ancient enemies of Israel, and what are they doing? They're coming through the gate to engage in worship of Yahweh. So there's these diverse ethnic groups, they're all coming through the gate, they're, they're speaking glorious things of Yahweh God. And, and what do we see here? They're, they're, they're united in their worship, but what's the source of their unity? And this is crucial. What is the source of their unity? What does he say? He calls them here Zion-born. So they're coming in, they're all unified in worship, but what's the source of their unity? It's, it's the fact that they've all been born here. Look at verse 5. It says, of Zion it shall be said, 
this one. So there's, there's the, it's like he's looking as they come through the, the gates. And he said, okay, there's, a, there's an Egyptian. He, he's born here. There's an Ethiopian. They're born here. Here's a Philistine. They're born here. What, what does that mean? In this culture, there were certain privileges that, that went along with being a person born, a, a natural-born citizen of that city. There were rights and privileges that only a, a Zion-born person would have. And here, what we see is, is an instance in the Old Testament of, of the idea of being born again. A person comes into the, through the gates of Zion and comes into the, this community of faith and God says, you've been reborn, you've, you've been reborn, and, and, and now you're, you're part of Zion. There's, there's greater honor given to those who are citizens of Zion. It wasn't bad to have been born in Egypt or Ethiopia or be part of the Philistines, but there's a greater honor given to one who's Zion-born, who's, an, who's, a, who's a, 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 a naturalized citizen. And as they come through the gates, there's this rebirth. rebirth. And the Lord, verse 6, as he records the people, he registers them in the in the. Uh, in the record of the city and says, you're, you're born here, you're a naturalized citizen, you're exempt from some of the taxes, and you're, you're a full benefit of all the benefits that are associated with being part of the people of God, part of the community of faith. God unifies his people through rebirth. It's an implicit question then, right? And, and, and here, to be honest, you know, I've, I've had to really pause as I think about the implications of this passage. And, and here's, here's the question. Are we at Bethany Community Church in sin by not being more diverse? I just want you to think about that. Let that, let that question sit for a moment. Is it sinful that we aren't more diverse than we are? If God delights in diversity of worship, if God doesn't divide people, but unifies people through rebirth, through being reborn, through being born again, through faith in Jesus Christ, as we'll talk about in a moment, then what does it say about our church that we're not more diverse than we are? Here's a couple thoughts that I had. Here's a couple thoughts I had. It's a sin if we're not diverse because our gates aren't open, right? Would, would you agree with that? And I think, and this is what I challenged my brothers and sisters in South Africa with, and, and they have, uh, they have some, some very different but still very profound things to work through as, as they consider what it looks like. In fact, as I was talking with, uh, there, there were several different uh, ethnic groups that I was kind of talking with after the service as we kind of talked about Psalm 87, and, and one, of the, one of the brothers challenged me, he said, you know, for us, it is ethnic diversity, but what we found even more profound than the ethnic diversity is, is socioeconomic diversity. So all the people that are part of our church kind of have a, a same worldview about, about how to you know, work and, and function. There's some other challenges that, that we face that, that, are, that are somewhat different. I thought that was, that was good. It could be diversity of several different types, right? Perhaps there's a lack of diversity when it comes generationally. And, and I believe that it's a sin that we're not more diverse if it's because our gates aren't open. We say, okay, this is the type of worship that I want. This is the style of music I want. And, and, and because this is what I want, there's a lack of diversity. That would be sinful. I think it's also sin if we're not passionate about diversity. In other words, if we don't say, uh, I, want my, 
I want the gospel witness to be manifested in diversity. And if, if, if we don't desire that, it indicates we're not a people who are reborn. It's a sin if we don't wish diversity. Now, here's the last principle. Here's the last principle. This is the joyous springs principle. And the joyous spring principle tells us that God saves his people through exclusive means. God saves his people through exclusive means. Though there's a variety of people who come to worship Yahweh, the springs of salvation we see are found in Jerusalem alone. God's plan of salvation is exclusive here, right? What does it say in verse 7? Verse seven? Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs, and that word spring is, is a, a word in Scripture used also to describe salvation. All my spring, all of my salvation is in you. Here's the point. The Egyptian can't find salvation in Egypt. The Egyptian can't stay in Egypt and worship the the Egyptian gods and find salvation. The Ethiopian can't stay in Ethiopia and, and find salvation in Ethiopia. The European can't, or the Philistine can't stay in, in, in Philistia and, and, and worship uh, the Baals or whatever false gods they worship. They all have to come to the spring of salvation that's found in the Messiah alone. Salvation and true unity only takes place through faith in Jesus Christ. The revelation that God gave to his people, the Jews, as we talked about this whole last year, it, it points to the, the good news that's found in the, in the Messiah, Jesus the, the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And, and you and I have that exclusive message, and our, our goal is to call men and women of all cultures to become one at the cross, to recognize that we're all sinners, that Christ died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, and that faith alone and him alone can save us. Our voice cannot be silent about that, right? You and I have to love diversity, have to love the idea of of peoples of different tongues and tribes and nations engaging the worship of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And if we truly love that idea, and if we love those who are from different cultures and backgrounds and generations and socioeconomic statuses than ourselves, if we truly love them and have the same passion that God has for them to engage in worship as well, our voices cannot help but be silent. It cannot help but but not be silent. There's a a great thing I read this morning. Let me see if I can find it real quickly. I I told you uh, we met uh, Doug, Pastor Doug, and he has... uh, a daughter who's married to a Afrikaans, and uh, this this Afrikaans are some of the the uh, white South Africans who uh, were many of them were the perp- perp- uh, perpetrators of apartheid in, in South Africa. And Doug's daughter and her Afrikaans husband are adopting a a black baby from South Africa, and. Her, her husband, this, this Afrikaans dad, struggled with it and didn't know that he was going to struggle with it. And, and just, just yesterday or this morning, I, I saw that on the, the he, he had posted this, his, his dad had posted this article about himself. And, and uh, let, let me just read, just read a, a little clip from what he wrote about his heart attitude. He said, you know, I'm, I'm the, currently the pastor of an Afrikaans-speaking Reformed Baptist church 
I'm part of the Association of Evangelical Churches in Southern Africa. The majority of my brothers are black and African. I've attended several and, and preached at more than one conference in more than one African country. And I love all my African brothers and sisters in those countries. I wasn't a racist, but the seed of racism was in my heart. He talked about how whenever his daughter-in-law and son announced their adoption, how that, that seed kind of, kind of was confronted. He says, I, I experienced turbulent emotions and thoughts. I battled against thoughts of hate, rage, and an unforgiving attitude. I also realized that I, I had a problem with some of the American pastors in the church circles where I was the only Afrikaans-speaking pastor rubbed shoulders with them. And the, why the Americans? Because they initiated the idea of adopting black orphans, and they and their church members started to adopt black babies by the dozens. Uh, I just felt that this was a bandwagon, that they were subtly or openly motivating their members and my son and daughter-in-law to adopt. I heard more than one person saying that they are battling with a guilty conscience because they don't want or can't adopt. And, and he says, all this was oil on my fire. And he talks about how the gospel... The gospel changed his heart attitude, a heart attitude that he didn't even realize existed. As we think about nations reborn and, and lovely gates, sometimes the gates of our heart are closed in ways we don't even realize. The call of the gospel of faith alone in Jesus Christ alone is, for, is a call to confront the attitudes in our heart that don't reflect the passions of God to be excited about engaging in worship of God, a wideness of worship of God at one wellspring, the wellspring of the Messiah, of faith alone in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of your son Jesus. We pray that our hearts would receive that good news and proclaim it to all. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.